0: This week, I have a podcaster, another podcaster that I listen to all the time. I'm trying to collect all my favorites and, and have a great conversation with all of them. And this week, it's Stephen Hackett of Relay FM. Hey, Stephen. Hey, thanks for having me on. I am a big fan of, of all the work you guys do over there. You're the network that fills up most of my overcast playlists. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I hear your voice Good. all over the place and connected and un- ungeniused, which I never say right. And yeah, you mean you've been <laughs> at this a long time.
1: Yeah. We should talk about Ungenius for a second. So for people who aren't initiated, it's a podcast on Relay FM where Mike Hurley and I pick a weird topic on Wikipedia and then like do like an explainer thing on it. And it's fully scripted, like the jokes are scripted, it's very tightly edited. But the name the name is awful. Like Ungenius was actually Mike and I's first project together in like twenty eleven or something. And then we canceled it and then we brought it back. And I should have changed the name because the name's horrendous, but it it's sort of it's one of those things, like, that's not a word, but it's now the that collection of sounds means this podcast, and so now I'm stuck with it forever. I mean, when you
0: say it, it makes sense. I just, when I look at it, I, I read something else in my mind, so.
1: Yeah. I, I have a, a John Gruber moment of mispronouncing. <laughs> what, what app did he mispronounce? so famous? Um, <laughs> Pixelmator. Okay, my favorite ever was, and hopefully
0: he's not listening to this, one time he was talking about uh, the, the the Asian soup and referred to it as Raman, And I had never thought of it to be pronounced that way before, but
1: it's amazing. That's really something. Poor yeah, yeah. Oh, John. Great show. Sorry, John. Yeah, we love you, John.
0: But, okay, <laughs> your shows. You, also, you guys have been doing this live thing lately that's been awesome to watch from a distance. I mean, I'd love to see it up close, but you've been touring around 2018. There's a lot of that. What's that like? Like going from, I mean, right now we're both just sitting in, isolated studios with nothing to look at, but a screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're right. on stage in front of a lot of people It turns podcasting into a very different <laughs> business.
1: It, it does. So 2018 for really FM was like the year of live shows. Our goal was to do uh, as many as we could. And so we did the pen addict, which is a show that Mike does with Brad Dowdy about like fountain pens and stationery. not my world, but it's a lot of people's <laughs> world. They have done a, a live show in Atlanta, for like five years running at the Elena pen show. So we did that one. And then they did a live pen addict in Chicago. And we did a connected at WWDC at San Jose in front of like 500 people, which was incredible. And then this fall we went to Chicago, New York and Toronto doing upgrade connected and the pen addict again. And I, I love live shows. Like, don't get me wrong. I like that I work alone. I like that I'm in here in my little studio. There's no one else out here. I like that this is sort of my world. But I just, I really love like being on stage and like making jokes and doing gags and like, all the, all this funny stuff we do in our live shows because it, it for me, it's a really good reminder that that people, A, really do listen, but like really feel connected to what we do. And it's so humbling to me that people buy tickets and show up. Repeatedly, yeah, <laughs> it it lets us sort of break out of that mold and like meet and, and see people and take selfies and like hang out with people who listen to the shows. But it's also fun because Relay FM is one hundred percent remote. Like Mike Curly, my business partner, he lives in London. I live in Tennessee. Like we see each other, you know, five or six times a year, but we don't work together, mm-hmm. right? Like when we're together, we're we're doing live shows or we're at a conference or something. We don't get like the day in and day out. Of life together and going on tour gives us, you know, a week or something of that where we spend a lot of time together and, you know, he and I are friends. We were friends before relay. We'll, we will be friends after relay if that day ever comes, but it gives us an opportunity to spend time together and then to do shows together in person where, where the energy and like the speed, because you can see people and, you know, jump off each other and stuff. The energy there is just something I really love. and, We've got a lot planned for 2019 that is going to sort of up the ante again, I think. Oh, that's great. Have you announced it yet? Is that uh, Are we still waiting to hear? We are still waiting to hear. All right. Sorry. All right. I'll wait patiently. No spoilers quite yet. <laughs> you know, but we'll be at WWDC. We'll do live shows there. And we've got some stuff planned a little bit later in the year as well to – Get out on the road and see people. It's just fun to meet people and hang out. So
0: I think it's easy to lose perspective of that as a consumer of content. Like if you just watch your favorite YouTubers or listen to your favorite podcasters, it can seem like you're social—it feels like you're socializing, right? That's It's kind of a a replacement for having a friend next to you to chat with. You've got your internet friends to chat with. But what's hard to remember when you're watching is that a lot of the time— the creator was also alone at the time. Both sides were alone when the thing was happening. And it's, there's sort of this I mean, creating a lot of social media content in my life, it becomes more and more obvious how disconnected the social aspect can be, and that you actually have to sometimes make an effort to actually make it a social engagement and not just giving yourself pats on the back or whatever.
1: No, I think that's right. You know, and there's, there's a weird angle to that too, where someone who like listens to our shows or watches your YouTube channel, listens to your show, they feel like they know you, they feel like they're buddies with you. And in reality, you don't know them. Like it's, it's a one-sided relationship and that can be a difficult thing to sort of deal with both, both as sort of like the fan or the listener or the viewer, right? You get to meet your hero and that's cool and take selfie and and that sort of thing. But like on the creator side of it, like I I struggle with that sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, meeting people who like know a lot about me and all because of things I've elected to share, right? Like no one's ever been creepy. I'm not not saying that. But it's sort of a – it's something I didn't anticipate when we started out on this journey and and something that I've had to learn – just sort of how to navigate that when you're talking with people and, and meeting people like after an event or something, or you get stopped somewhere, someone recognizes you, you know, being gracious to them because, you know, there is a relationship there, and even though it's, it's more one-sided than sort of a normal friendship. It's that can be a really delicate thing. And I think like creators have some sense of, of obligation or responsibility in that situation, like to be gracious and be kind, like, Again, if the person's being appropriate and cool and everything, but that's just something I didn't anticipate five years ago having to deal with. And it's, it can be, it can be hard, right? It can leave you feeling, feeling kind of, for me at least, kind of like drained, like kind of like, Oh, right. Like Mm -hmm. I've poured so much of myself into this work and people just, you know, take it in and take it in. And you got to remember to like leave some of the tank for you.
0: Well, I feel like I'm still a little too new to, to that part of it. Like people have only started recognizing me pretty recently recently. Um, but I think all the best advice I've heard about it uh, came from Merlin Mann, where he's, I mean, he's talked about it on a bunch of episodes that I won't be putting in the show notes because I don't even remember when it was, but he he's brought it up time and again about the, just sort of understanding that anytime you start an interaction with somebody, like be aware of what you're asking of them. And I mean, the simplest way that I'm starting to see this all the time is, say, Instagram has direct messages and with stories, it really is like an open invitation. Like, I just posted this and there's a button right there for you to chat back to me. And it creates a one-on-one personal conversation immediately. And just so you know, people people who are sending messages, when a message shows up that's extremely long, that's a that can be a big challenge. Because I look at it and I'm like, I want to give this person all the time and attention that their question or their comment deserves. But I am super busy today, and I'm just going to have to get back to it later because I just I don't have time to like read it over twice and know what I want to say back. Having some awareness of what that is 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 also a skill on like both sides, and I don't know. I I, I definitely am still working on responding to it better, uh, but it's good to know from the other end too that like sometimes if you don't necessarily get the response you're hoping for, it can be just the challenge of like. The more time you're looking for in your question, the the harder it might be to get satisfaction out of the conversation.
1: I think that's totally fair, and it's you know for me sometimes it feels like it's day to day. There's some days where I want to be chatty with people on Twitter or in Instagram messages or or email even, and then there's like other days or even like whole like whole seasons like whole stretches where I just I can't make that investment for whatever reason, whether it be work professional or personal, and You know, it's just it's just hard to balance that sort of stuff because then, at least for me, I feel bad if I don't get back to that email or I leave that you know Twitter reply you know sort of hanging out there. And so I try to make an effort, but it it can be difficult. And again, that's that's something that someone who's been doing this for a while now. I just I didn't anticipate. I just didn't think we'd ever be big enough where that would be a possibility. And like I'm thrilled that it is. Like it's again, it's super humbling that people care, and I love it. But it's something that. You've got to take into account when you sort of look at you know, what are my responsibilities as a creator. That is part of it, but you've got to f- find the order in which all that stuff goes. And that could be tricky.
0: Well, when I reached out to you, well, th- that's actually I mean an example of it is uh, when I'm reaching out to people to be part of this show. I have no idea how much th- how much awareness anybody out there has of me, and I like to assume that it's none, right? So I try to keep mm-hmm. invitations as short as possible. And if you're not available, then, like, I'm not going to take
1: up more of your day on it. But um, in inviting you— <laughs> the, on, Those dozen roses I got weren't from you. Was, <laughs> <laughs> I got a problem. Oh, no,
0: no, no. That uh, that definitely was. But so when I reached out to you, you had a really great suggestion for a topic for the show that it hadn't it hadn't occurred to me to talk about it, but I think about it a lot. So I'm really glad you did. And uh, it covers, I mean, everything we're already talking about. But, but the way you presented it was the transition, the— Rise and fall of blogging, essentially. Yeah. And what I kind of interpreted that as, and what I've been thinking about is the movement from open platforms to closed platforms, um, from mm-hmm. uh, the open web oh, to boy. proprietary, <laughs> and, and everything involved in that. I mean, I started making some notes and decided, I don't know, that at first I wanted to hear what your thoughts are on about this, because to everybody, it's something different. Like, what blogging is is different, or what the open web is, because your your background with it, or the categories of uh, interest that you've had, affect what the what the world has been. So, what's your perspective on where this has come from and where we are now?
1: It's a really interesting topic, and I think a, a, another factor you didn't mention is when you came up into it. So, before relay, before podcasting, like I started blogging at five twelve pixels. In 2008, the fall of 2008. So I just crossed the 10-year mark with my blog, like a continuous body of work for a decade. Congratulations. I feel ancient. But <laughs> at the time, in 2008, if you had something to share online, and I did, I had been, like this is ancient history now, but I'd have been a Mac genius and then left Apple and I wanted to like talk about nerdy stuff. And I was like, well, here I am in 2008, like the way you do that is install WordPress somewhere and just start writing articles, right? Like, And even in 2008, that I think the glory days of blogging maybe were already fading a little bit, especially if you wanted to make like a business out of it, which like 512 pixels it, to this day, and it's more popular than ever, squarely in the hobby category on my like income spreadsheet, right? right? Like, it's over here. It's the thing I do because I want to do it. but. I came up in that time period of like, this is just like, this is the way you do it because you know Twitter was around for like a year or two before then, but it wasn't at all what it is today. Podcasting was around, but not at all what it was, what it is today. I wasn't doing it yet. And so that's just, that was the choice. So it was kind of the only choice really. And so for me, when I look at it, like if the question that I think is interesting that we can look into is like, if you're starting today, what do you do? And like, if your answer is a blog for most people, that's not the right answer. Mm-hmm. The problem with it is within an independent stuff like that is you're not on a platform where an audience already is, right? You're, you're on your own and you have to draw the audience to you. And in 2008, that was easier than it is today because, you know, my little corner of the internet, like the Mac nerd corner was smaller back then. Right. And I, I wrote for a couple of years and got some links on daring fireball and Marco Arment linked to me and, you know, kind of some like really early things sort of propelled that site into kind of being read by like the Mac faithful. But now there's so much of this stuff, it's harder to sort of break through. So I think that like when you come up as an interesting question, for me at least, like I continue to do it because I like having a place that is independent. Like I like that when Twitter goes away, because I think (laughs) – I'm (laughs) of the camp to think that's inevitable Mm – you know, like I don't want all my words, all my work to be on someone else's platform that I don't control. And that's really the key of it for me. And some people are gonna to listen to that and be like, that that's a silly idea, but it's something that I care a lot about. And so I continue to like keep it out there sort of as its own thing.
0: I think also the longer you've been around, the more real it is to know that these fixtures of the industry, Twitter and Instagram and, and places you never expect to disappear. Do go away. This is the thing sure. that happens. It's not, you know, Google Reader seemed like a pretty sure thing for a while. And
1: <laughs> oh, it still hurts, man. No, no, it still man. hurts. <laughs>
0: or, <laughs> you know, it's just so many things. Like when Google started Google Plus as well, now these are going to be Google examples. That seemed like they were pretty serious about it. And you wouldn't have expected it to be closing its doors a few short right. years later. It wasn't that long. Or, yeah, it's you know, gone. Yeah,
1: we're, it's, we're seeing it right now. Like r- as we record this in the beginning of 2019, we are seeing the death of Tumblr, like before our eyes. Right. right? Yeah. And it was bought by whoever and then it became Oath and now it's Verizon Media Group, which is like the saddest company name <laughs> ever. Like, <laughs> it's you don't want to work for somebody not not called Verizon Media Group, but not it's not great. And they've, you know, they changed rules around adult content. Like I'm not talking about that sort of thing, but just like looking at Tumblr's place in the ecosystem – it has just cratered over the last few years. And in 2008, when I started blogging, if I was going to go somewhere, Tumblr would have been it because it had all these great tools and was like very popular at the time. And it's where a lot of stuff ended up because it was easy and you didn't have to host it or anything. But but even then, like even in the 10 years, seeing where it's gone, is like, man, like I never would have thought Tumblr would have like basically disappeared. Never, you know, 2006, 2007, Stephen would be like blown away that Flickr would be like really struggling. These things feel like institutions, but over the course of time, very few things actually are that sort of at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, anybody that's not old enough to have been around, I think Flickr is, Flickr and Tumblr are both great examples because even Flickr has faded to the point of irrelevance. It's not that it's, not useful for people that are still there. I actually think it's still kind of a nice site. Like I have uploaded to it occasionally lately and they have improved it. It's, it's, it's fine. It's u- very usable. But back in the day, this idea that it would go away, it it seemed just as impossible as Instagram going away. And I realize Instagram is is bigger in total numbers, but if you were sure. in the tech tech photography community, you were sure that you could count on Flickr being there. Forever, yeah. <laughs> this did not, and especially right. not that the one that would outlive it would be Smug Mug. Hey, you know, Smug Mug seemed like the ones that would uh disappear, but no, they've yeah. done apparently they're and thriving they and
1: own Flickr, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is weird. You know, I actually came across a blog post on 512 pixels just this week, actually, and there was a link to in the article to a MySpace page. And like, a, yeah. just like my bones just crumbled to dust inside my body when I saw that. I was like, oh, how old is this blog post? But again, you know, how many people built their their careers or launched their careers on something like MySpace and it is like gone. Like yeah. if you ask my my 10-year-old what MySpace is, he's like, I've never heard of it, you know. But it was so critical at the time, it's just it's just vapor. Like it's just
0: <laughs> – If we're going to go back in time, we might as well keep going back to where I really started, which was GeoCities. And uh, oh I was – boy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. So I would have been, you know – 141516 so my first website was called i mean obviously it's going to be embarrassing it's called a somewhat woody simpson's website which is not clever in any way and something a 14-year-old would think of. And basically, at the time, Simpsons websites were that you would just copy-paste quotes from all the other Simpson websites and steal other image databases and just have a bunch Perfect. of show material. And uh, obviously, also stealing the source code, so just go around and take little bits I like and other yeah. things and stick them in there. But um, GeoCities made it pretty easy. I mean, I'm still grateful that that platform allowed me to learn HTML and the just basics of coding and... Those sure. things carried through and definitely became part of what my whole career was. But the things that I created there as GeoCities vanished, which same situation. I mean, again, the community was smaller, but GeoCities was the biggest thing. It was, it. it again, it was a Flickr. It was an Instagram. And now it's absolutely nothing. And anything I created on it is totally gone forever. And I have no control over that, so...
1: It's a weird thing. And when you think about it in the the context of today, so you mentioned Instagram, so like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, they are, especially Facebook, like an order of magnitude larger than any of the sites that have come and gone before. For sure. Right? Like Facebook's the biggest thing on the internet ever, it seems like, at least in the number of users. So it's it's harder for me to see like, okay, I, I can understand how these other things went away, but like Facebook, like... I can't imagine a world without Facebook. Like I would like to live in a world without Facebook. Don't get me wrong, but it's hard to imagine it because <laughs> it is, it is just everywhere. And what they've done and Twitter to a lesser degree is they're not dependent on any one type of content or one type of user. Right. So geo cities, you kind of had, you had to be that nerdy 14 year old, right. To, to, go figure out how that worked Mm. myspace had you know independent musicians and then sort of mainstream musicians uh flickr had photographers before like social sharing was a thing they all had audiences that were eroded out from underneath them or found some other place to go but like facebook instead of having one or two legs to stand on it's got hundreds right like it just all sorts of communities are there all sorts of people everyone from like your great aunt you know uh sharing like pictures of the Cookies she baked with like maybe some like sort of terrible political things all the way to like people announcing you know the gender of their of their baby and like wedding and all of it's there right it's it's the fabric of social social being on on the internet it's hard for me to vision that going away or or what could replace it but history tells us that none of these things are too big to to go away if they're poorly managed or or if the audience sours and. You know, you can see Facebook take blow after blow, especially in 2018. Like every time I opened up the headlines, it's like, oh, Facebook did something else terrible. But even then, it's like, I don't know, can you, imagine, can you imagine a world without Facebook in it?
0: Well, it depends if we're talking about Facebook, the website, or the company. Because Facebook is very aware of the disappearance of older platforms. And that's why they are so many other companies. And they're gobbling up anybody that could ever... Yeah, possibly uh, replace them. The, you know, I, I think uh, the the best conversations about this are come from Ben Thompson. But they are building a moat around themselves that will mean that as a company, they will have a legacy that probably can be protected pretty much forever. But the website Facebook, I definitely could see fading in a way that um, it's not necessarily that they would close the doors because I know the numbers are apparently still huge. But based on the experience of me and and everyone around me, it's becoming uh, to to like my group. It's become so irrelevant that any work I put into it isn't important anymore. So So, now I post things on Facebook, and honestly, when I post this podcast, which a lot of people listen to, it's got it's got reviews, it's got I get tweets about it. Like a lot of people respond to it. When I post it on Facebook, my parents are the only ones that like it. (laughs) Like there's there's really very little response out there. And that absolutely wasn't the case one year ago, or two or or three years ago, especially. But I've seen a a very steep decline in engagement over there. And I don't check it. I don't keep the app on my phone anymore. Um, So it's not that it it will go away for everybody. But in my world, any time that I invested in Facebook in the past is becoming less and less important. Whereas, now, I, I want to make sure I get to kind of what I think is the most important thing before I chase too many rat holes. Whereas what I think (laughs) is is the most important thing about having something independent like a blog or a podcast, which is the same type of technology. The key thing is open technologies, open web. You have that control forever. And whether or not people come and visit it more in the future, the thing that you've created is always yours. You can always relaunch it on another host. You can always redesign it. You can reprogram it. I mean, it can always be that work exists and can be referenced again in the future. Yeah, I just want to be clear that I I absolutely love that about it. Even as maybe the traffic's not what it used to be or it doesn't get you the same kind of job that it used to or advertising is more challenging than in some of the closed platforms, the control that you the the control over your future is really really priceless.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree and and that's why I- you know i continue to put time and effort into 512 pixels like i want it to be a body of work that spans my career on the internet and it has changed over time there's some really embarrassing things in the archives but it, it has grown with me in a way that will prove resilient over time that if it was on one of these other platforms oh i got to export it all before they go away and you know figure out how to get this json file into something else and like yeah what you want it's just wordpress like <laughs> yeah <laughs> right as a give up right yeah Uh, In a way that that other platforms just don't have that longevity because they're dependent on somebody else. I mean, when we started Relay in 2014, five years ago now, even then there were some options for like hosted podcast stuff. Like there are a lot now. Like you've got Simplecast and Fireside and Squarespace, of course, and lots of others. Mm -hmm. There were a few back then, but we made the decision of like we're going to invest. Uh, We bought a small content management system for somebody. We have poured time and energy and love and frustration into it over the last five years to build it what it is now for the same reason, right? Like Relay can exist regardless of what happens to other platforms like it. And we've yep. even seen them like come and go over the five years where I control if it stays up or not, but then I can also shape it to what I want it to be. So like if we want a feature or we want to do something in in that CMS – Like we can just go do it because we've got control of it where if I was using someone else's stuff, I would have far less control. And for people who are picky or people who want things a certain way, uh, that is a factor to consider. And it's one thing that that we really value of like – like our CMS, like no one else is ever going to use it, I don't think. Mm -hmm. But we invest in it as a product, like an internal product to the company. And that makes us take it seriously, and I think we should because it's it, it's the tool that allows us to do what we do.
0: But also, don't scare people away to think they need to uh, build their own CMS to get started. <laughs> because no, no, open, I mean the openness still exists in other platforms. Like I, and also I, I totally know what you mean. I'm more addressing anybody that might have heard that and think like, oh, to be part of this sure. open web, I need to develop my own.
1: No, uh, not at all. And like, right? It's like podcasting in itself, just like blog. Like they're built on the same thing. It's just RSS feeds, right? Mm-hmm. And. There are people and like, we can get into this if you want to, but there are people who want to change that about podcasting. We're adamantly against it. Like we want, like you can take my RSS feed and put it in anything you want. Anything that can parse RSS, you can download our episodes. I love that about podcasting. I love that about blogging. Again, they're sort of built around the same technology, but it gives us like the flexibility, uh, not only on our end, but on our, on our listeners. end. they can do with it what they want and like, we built our own CMS because we have specific needs because we host thirty something shows. <laughs> but because it's just RSS, like say you're at, you know, podcast providing company A and they struggle and then you move to podcast, you know, production company B, that's not as difficult as it would seem because it's all built on open stuff. You know, it's different than if you're just recording audio and putting it into you know, some sort of like third party application where they host it for you. And, you know, there's not really RSS feeds. It's like, that's a different thing than like open web podcasting, like what you and I are doing.
0: Yeah. And that was a really important thing that I looked into when I chose my host for this show. Uh, My last show was on Squarespace. sure, And I still, I still don't regret that. I think that was smart because it's stallman.com that I'm always going to own that domain and I'm always going to keep paying that bill. So even though now I'm updating that Older podcast less, it can still exist without me reinvesting in it. Right. For this show, I went. I was more sure that I wanted this show to be great because there's a lot of lacking um, services in Squarespace. You kind of have to roll your own statistics, and it's a a little a little messier. So I went with Fireside. And uh, one of the most important things when I was looking at it is how do I get out? Mm -hmm. Um, If you guys can't stay alive for whatever reason. How easy is it for me to export everything and move it to Libsyn anywhere? Right. Right. And there are some out there that won't be so easy. So, without naming names, (laughs) take a close look before you get started and, you know, be prepared to be ready to move. Like, have things as if this could disappear any moment. Not that they're going to, but it's, I think it's a healthy perspective because that's the internet's more fragile than you think it is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it gives you, like we've been talking about, it gives you the control over the destiny of, of that project, right? That if like your hard work doesn't have to go down with the ship, basically. And it gives you, it gives me at least like the way I think about this is it, it separates like the content, like the the project I'm working on, like from the implementation a little bit, right? So like say that, you know, 512 pixels is on WordPress. Say that something happened and WordPress didn't mean my needs anymore. We're like, okay, like I can just, dis- suck all the, you know, the 10 years of blog posts out of it and put them somewhere like ghost or, you know, uh Jekyll or something like that if I needed to, because it, it's all built around open stuff. And it, it means that the, the, the container that it's all in could change over time. Mm-hmm. You know, the platform it's built on could change over time. And if you're thinking about a project like really long term, that's, I think at least an important consideration. Now it's not like the most important thing, like, if we talk about video stuff for a second, like you've, you basically have got to be on YouTube, right? Like you, you if you have a blog and you're just like posting your own videos with like the video tag <laughs> and uh, you're like,
0: hosting them yourself.
1: Yeah. Like that's a bad business decision, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's not going to go super well, but you know, something uh, CGP Gray did years ago now was okay. They're on YouTube, but like, there's also an RSS feed, like there are other ways to get this content. And I think that's a smart approach, but not all mediums or like blogging or podcasting where I think there's incentive to be independent with your technology like yes if you're doing video YouTube's the place to be and like if YouTube goes away at some point you're not going to be the only person with a problem right like something crazy has happened and there will be something you know that rises up to sort of take over at least some of that load so even if you're in a closed system if it's a big enough one you shouldn't keep you up at night well and so that's the other
0: side of it that it I want to encourage everybody to control some part of your own destiny. But what's happened is that the the power of these bigger platforms has gotten so enormous. And I'm, I'm really glad to have you on, too, because you do both. You also have an active YouTube channel and podcast and blog. And I'm, so I'm sure you can see all of the effects of these things. And people wouldn't be discovering this this show right now that we're talking on If it was just this open web project and I relied on SEO, nobody would be listening right now. It is through the power of Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube that all these, anybody out there is listening right now. It was was only through these closed platforms that they were able to find the show, which is a change. I mean, in the days of Yahoo just handwriting indexes, there's only a few dozen (laughs) websites. And so as long as you were one of them, uh, you'd probably actually get found a little bit. Now it's yeah. it's it's shifted and I think you you have to play the game of some of these bigger platforms to reach a serious amount of people. It's a double edged sword, you know? I totally I definitely get involved with it. I think it's great to be part of the YouTube community, Instagram, Twitter. But if you're not aware of those risks, which I mean, I see a lot of amazing creators that are all of their eggs are in one basket. I think Instagram is probably the best example of it because if Instagram went away, it would be hard to bring those followers anywhere else. YouTube, you can move people around. If they're engaged with you on YouTube and you said, look guys, I'm closing the channel. I'm moving over to a just doing a podcast. A big number of people would come over and hang out with you in the podcast. That'd be very challenging to do on, on Instagram and maybe Twitter, I don't know. I don't know. Twitter, Twitter's, they're all, they're all very different, but what's your, why do you choose the ones that you do and what's been your experience with them?
1: For me, uh, the way I try to think about it is like, what is the, like what's the ultimate goal of the project? So like you mentioned the five twelve YouTube channel, it's like a side project to a side project, right? Like it's the side project that the blog has and the blog's already off to the side, but (laughs) I wanted to sort of like showcase, I'm a, I'm a, Antique Computer Collector. I know that sounds really cool. Everybody calm down. Well, that was um, but the first I suggestion to... <laughs> I had for the topic. We could have been talking for that about a few hours, but... I have a lot of thoughts about the PowerPC G3, but I wanted to showcase some of the things in my collection. I've been doing that via blog post forever, you know, photos and articles and stuff, but I never got the reach that I wanted, and I thought, you know, I've got all this cool stuff, and, like, I can work a camera, I can edit, like, I'm not great, but I can piece something together... And I think it'd be really interesting to try YouTube as a way to like showcase some of the technologies. Like some people have never seen this Mac or that, that Mac or that iPod and like YouTube is a much bigger thing. And I put things there and maybe I'll get lucky and things will get like, you know, sort of sucked into the machine and people will discover it. So for me, the idea was, okay, I want to get this stuff into the world in a way beyond the footprint of just the blog. And so I'm fine having those videos on YouTube because they give me the opportunity to get get those videos in front of a lot of other people and I've had you know some videos not do very well and I've had other videos go really wide and I've been able to you know there's some feedback from that you know back into the blog back onto Twitter, maybe into the podcast I don't know, but for that type of content, that was the place for it to be. So if YouTube's at the head of that line, the other things become supportive, right? So those videos get embedded on the blog. I, you know, talk about them in my Instagram stories. I tweet about them, you know, leading people down the trail to the YouTube page. And so for that project, that works, you know, but something like the podcast, you know, it's podcast discovery. Like you said, is hard. It's like podcasts are just not super discoverable. And so for us, like, the success we've had with Relay, a lot of that has to do with word of mouth. And so like how do we how do we tweet about the shows in a way that like is easy to share? And so a lot of shows, especially the ones I'm on and the mic are on, you know, the shows have Twitter accounts and those Twitter accounts have the personality of the show. So like Connected is sort of a silly show. It's become a silly show. It's about Apple tech, but, you know, there's there's a sense of humor to that show. And so we've brought that into the Twitter account. And the followers in that account have grown you know, pretty well over the last couple of years. And so for us, like, like Twitter could be a place to, to sort of sling people into the podcasts, whereas uh, for us at least, I know it's different for other people, we haven't really found that success with like posting the podcast on YouTube. Cortex does it, but that's because Gray has a large YouTube channel. But some other shows have tried it and it, it hasn't been successful for whatever reason. And so, okay, that – Didn't it work? Our audience just doesn't want to listen to a audio only podcast on YouTube. That's fine. You know, we can drop that and and try something else. So it's about some experimentation, but it's really about sort of like laying out the groundwork of like, how is somebody going to get from A to B as, as smoothly as possible? That can be tricky to work out, but I think over time we've, we've come to understand like our audience, like the sort of the Apple nerd audience for better or for worse, they're on Twitter. Like that's just, that's, Grounds here. Yeah. And as much as I would like personally like to leave Twitter, it's important for work. And so I stay because my audience is there, our stuff is being shared there. Conversations between the audience and the host are there, and I need to be a part of that. And so I invest in Twitter and I'm still there because that's where the action is. And if the action moves somewhere at some point in the future, then I'll readdress it. This
0: episode is brought to you by
1: Cronaby, who make classic watches with smart features. You might be
0: wondering what 's your favorite smart feature about these watches tyler uh you're probably you're probably not wondering that, but i'm going to tell you anyway what I really like these watches for and honestly any connected watch the main thing that it is to me is a notification delivery system if it didn't do anything else i 'd probably still wear it like that is the key feature is that I have a second way of knowing when important texts, or phone calls come through. So one thing I really like about how Cronaby's done it is inside of their app, which they designed all in-house, this is a beginning-to-end Cronaby Swedish-designed watch and app, uh, unlike others. I mean, there's you know Google watch systems out there that uh, you know are just kind of white-label the software, and then third-party vendors can pick it up and design a watch around it. That's not what happened here. Cronaby did this from beginning to end. Anyway, inside of the app you're able to assign different priorities of notifications to different people or groups of people or to all of the texts or phone calls that you're getting in. So for example, I can have the watch vibrate three times when my wife texts, uh, two times when she calls, and one time when somebody else texts um, or anybody else. And that's, that's kind of how I set it up. I, I set it up on like stacked priorities, um, but also try not to get a lot of notifications through it because that's Also part of wearables to me is being able to live more freely and have a more connected and less distracted life. So I like to have very few notifications, but when I get them, I know that they're important. And I'm more likely to get them because it's on my watch and it's following me around the house or, you know, I don't have to have my phone in my pocket or even a simple other examples when your phone's in a jacket pocket, can't feel the vibrations, and I don't know about you, but I don't turn the sound on on my phone. Anyway, thank you so much to Cronby for sponsoring the episode. I really think you guys should go check out the watches they design. Go to K-R-O-N-B-Y dot com. Again, the designs need to be seen to be believed no I mean you you probably believe me that they're nice but you should take a look at them they're they're honestly really great watchmakers I love these guys and again thank you to Cronaby for supporting the show so we're recording this at the start of 2019 and being the new year I've been thinking about what I want to do this year a little bit and part of my theme for um especially for what I want to help people with and teach people and bring out to the world is the idea of cross-media literacy, being able to work comfortably in different platforms without it feeling like a struggle.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, a good example is like a small business owner that wants to get the word out there about whatever it is they do, but what they do isn't create web products. You know, mm-hmm. they're not a photographer, they're not a filmmaker, they're not a Podcaster or a blogger. They don't, none of these things come very natural to them. But all these things can make the entire difference in their career or life. And, and it's, it really is whatever you do. It, it doesn't even have to be a business venture. I mean, I think it is also a really effective way just to connect with people and have a larger international community that you can be engaged with, even if you're just into games. Being able to take better mm-hmm. photos, or having a better web camera, or having better audio quality, or being able to knowing how to publish those in a way that's effective, can really change your life. In you know, to long and short, like for for me, it has it. It changes how I spend every day because I I do these things, and so I really want to encourage people to. Be comfortable in as many of these areas as you can. And I know everybody won't be comfortable in all of them. Like, personally, I am very slow at writing. I wish I wasn't. I like the written word, but it takes me a long time to get a blog post out. So I've always kind of had a blog that doesn't get updated much, but it's not the place for me. And I'd I'd like to get better at that. What you're doing as well, I think, is just such a a powerful path to be able to interact with all of these different places and to at least not be afraid to play with them and try them out and, and find the ones that really can work for you.
1: Yeah, I think people have this idea that if they go into a new project or a new medium that they've got to be successful like off the bat. And the reality is, like everyone starts, like unless you're just born into it, like I don't think anyone's born into being a YouTuber, maybe a few kids now, but <laughs> yeah, these days, yeah, 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 right. But like 99% of us, right, just started as like a person with an interest, right? And for me, it was blogging sort of in obscurity for like a, several years before I sort of got noticed. Then, like, Mike and I have a lot of podcasts that we did in like 2010, 2011, 2012 that no one heard, right? Like, <laughs> you are talking about like your parents. The only people checking in on Facebook. It's kind of how podcasting felt for a long time for us. It takes time to build that audience and, and hone your skill. But the the flip side of that coin, I think, and the one that I think a lot about is, okay, if I do it for a while, and I'm not successful. I feel paralyzed because like I don't also don't want to quit, right? Like I don't want to to give up. on a, What if the success is right around the corner? Or what if the, the you know the couple of people paying attention to me, you know, I, I sort of move on and I leave them hanging or I leave them with a the bad taste in their mouth at the end of the day. And I think as a like as a creative, you've got to give some of that up, right? So so just in my own life, right, uh, in 20, let's say 2011, 2012, you know, I had a good job. I had an IT career, but I really took a run at like making the blog. It was like, could I turn this into like an Apple news site where like I could pay the bills with it, right? And it was like, it was hilariously far off from what the site was making then to what I needed to, you know, keep food on the table for my family, my growing family at that time. But it was, it was something that I really sort of like put the pedal down for probably like eight months, like blogging a lot, like writing a lot, doing the thing that like I, I'd never do now. And I, I sort of feel gross about it that I did it like sending like, Hey, you know, uh, so-and-so Mr. Like important blogger or important news website. I wrote this thing. I think you'd be interested in it. And like it gained some traction, but I knew pretty quickly that it wasn't ever gonna be what I needed it to be right. Like the timing was wrong. It was more than a single person job, and so I really had a crisis of like, well, do I just like fold up the blog? Do I just like close it down? And I'm so thankful now I didn't. That I sort of like scaled it back. But you've got to you've got to look at those decisions and like be really honest with yourself of like, if this isn't working, why isn't it working? And if that's beyond my control for whatever reason, like, what do I do with it? Do I leave it completely? Do I scale it back? And and sort of, where do I find that happy medium? And that can be really hard. Neither of us can tell you what the answer is because it's all so multivariate, but it is something that I think a lot of people really struggle with. And I think a lot of people with like sort of like flailing creative projects, just they feel trapped by them. And that's a terrible feeling. I felt it. I've I've felt it with things more recently than that. And it's it's just something you've got to work through and like ask the hard questions of yourself, be honest with yourself, and sort of figure out the way forward. But but man, it can be it can be tough to know what the right answer is. There's a really great Verge article about the Twitch streamers who
0: spend years broadcasting to no one. Uh, they'll just throw it in the show notes and, and mention it. It's it's really interesting. But on a bigger note, I as somebody that creates tutorials about creating. Creative stuff. Too many, too many creates in there. You know, creating tutorials <laughs> about photography and video production stuff. A lot of people talking to me are looking to do this as a career and might be considering leaving a more traditional job for a creative job. I have a very hard time giving advice to them. I think what traditionally is the advice that you hear in in this world is like follow your dreams, follow your passion, do what you love don't stay at a job you hate and there there totally can be a lot of reasons to do that you know there can be real quality of life reasons to do something that is just purely enjoyable to you but I also try to have so much caution included in that have a plan and manage your own expectations because it can be Most people that try to do this don't succeed at a high level and aren't able to make it their full-time income. So it's good to know that before you start, that the odds already are against you. I don't know who you are, and I don't know how talented you are. Even if you're very talented, it's going to be really hard. And it may not be you that's one of the people that's able to do it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try. And I absolutely think people should be working to create the most Interesting and amazing content that they can. I mean, content's of boring word for it. The best art that they can and share it with the world. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so helpful to have a little bit of a plan of where that's going to go if it doesn't work out, and not to over leverage yourself in it or put too much on the line. That if this one path that I go and, and work really, really hard at for for eight months, that it doesn't it doesn't bankrupt you at the end. You're still able to turn around, and you know, in your case. It didn't pan out after eight months, but you were able to turn around and do something else that did work, right? You didn't put so much on the line that you couldn't recover from it.
1: Right. And I think in my specific example, at least that made the blog better because through that crucible, I discovered what the blog actually is, right? Like it's not Apple news site. It's a place where I can talk about things I'm interested in and more and more. That's like old technology. It's become more specific over time, but at the same time, I know it's the right decision, because the site traffic is up year over year over year for like the last cool. seven or you know six or seven years, right. and so it's, that's like reinforcement that that was the right decision. But in the moment, you don't have that knowledge, right? Like in the moment, it just feels like I've I've got to I got to make something work because my boss is driving me crazy, or uh, maybe I've already quit and now I'm in a situation where like this isn't working, and I got bills to pay. Like that, that's a scary situation too. It's just it's all really hard, but I, I like your, the, the heart of your advice, you know, being like, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but just try in a way that's, that's safe. You know, there, there's this, and I'm pretty conservative when it comes to this sort of stuff, but there are people out there, there's advice out there, you know, that would say, well, you've got to, you got to jump off the cliff if you're ever going to fly. Right. And like yeah, leap of faith, right. Like if you're in a place in your life, you can do that. Like, that's great. But Like I wasn't like I had kids and a mortgage and like, Car note, like I, I you know when I left my job to do relay full time, mm. relay was already making more than enough for a long time before I stepped off. Right? Like I didn't jump off a cliff. I stepped onto a, a like another piece of land. right like I wanted to be very solid. And so you gotta you gotta put all that into that sort of factor machine and, and sort of just you know decide what risk you're willing to take. And if the worst case scenario happens, are you gonna be okay? For me, that decision matrix was very different than someone who was maybe younger or single or, you know, had a bunch of money in the bank or something else, you know, they had a safety net. So you got to think about all that stuff. Because if, th- if you just think about just the business side or just the art side, or just like the dream of who you could end up being in, in like five years from now, like all of those are incomplete pictures. You need to figure out those things and weigh them all against each other. Just like we we're talking about earlier, like open versus closed. like all these decisions like none of them happen in a vacuum. You've got to look at all the factors, or you're going to make a mistake that that could be pretty pretty rough. Something I feel like I've also been leaving
0: out of this a bit. and I just want to pull it into the conversation. Is that about like half of my job for the last few years has also been working on a blog. It just isn't a technology blog. So, right. It, yeah, it's not something you probably would have stumbled across on your own, Stephen. <laughs> but uh, my wife's blog AnyaB. dot com is a fashion blog. So. I've been shooting for that for years, and that's been a pre, like a pretty big part of the work that we do. Um, I also do a lot of freelance photography, and we do that uh, production together. She's usually doing the art direction and stuff. But it it's interesting because it's at the beginning. I was talking about that. There's kind of these parallel universes. When you say blogging, you can hear something totally different depending who you are. So when I, if I'm talking mm-hmm. to my wife about a blogger, that means a very specific thing, and she would never think of John Gruber when I said that, right? Right. You should think of a fashion blogger (laughs) that's at fashion events and is uh, wearing different outfits in each photo. And photography is the main aspect of the blog and very little writing, much more emphasis on visuals. And there's this huge difference or that the political blogging ecosystem as well. That was so much of what blogs were for a little while. Like the huge mega blogs, a lot of them were politics. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of reintroduce that idea of like the the ways that it works can be so different and also the ways that you can make money on it. So when it comes to strictly blogging, what's left? I mean, in the olden days people talked about AdSense, I never am convinced anybody did all that well with it. I used to always wish, you know, the deck would uh, work with me on the blog that I didn't run. But what happens now if a blogger is looking to make money off of it, especially in the technology world.
1: Yeah. I like the idea of parallel universes a lot. I think a lot about that and the different types of shows Relay does. Like, you know, like the Pen Addict is a very specific world. It's not my world, but like <laughs> yeah. it's a parallel nerd universe. <laughs> mm-hmm. The tech blogging world, so much of it has turned to direct support. So like the very biggest players, so we've mentioned Gruber a bunch of times, uh, or some someplace like The Verge or Engadget, you know, these huge sites, you know, they're still big enough where they can draw – you know, advertising dollars that will keep the doors open, and you know, in in like the the Apple blogging, Gruber's probably the only one uh, who's doing that. The rest of us have some ad money. Like, and I run an ad on the sidebar five twelve, and it it makes enough to cover the hosting each month. But if I want to make anything more on top of that, it's going to be through direct support these days. So you know, I've got a membership, Federico Vitechi at Mac Stories has a membership. Jason Snell at Six Colors has a membership. Jim Dalrymple at The Loop has a membership. Like so mm-hmm. many people have moved to this mixed model of, we have got some advertising to cover some of the hard, you know, the fixed costs, but if we want to thrive, it's going to be due to direct support from members. And, and all of these sites, including my own have some sort of, tr- you know, extra content or a newsletter or, you know, something to incentivize people to sign up. And that is working okay for a lot of us, but you know those sites that I mentioned, even something like Mac Stories, which is sizable. He has a staff of people. You know, he's the biggest example there. You know, Mac Stories is still only three or four people, right? It's not. It's not a team mm-hmm. of people in Brooklyn doing videos and blogs and, and all this stuff. You know, so on the independent side, a lot of that is direct support. I like it on both sides. I like it as, you know, someone who is a member of all those sites because I know that I can help Jason and Federico do well, what they want to do. Can and you,
0: Can you take it one step back of what you mean by direct support? What does that equate to?
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. So uh, all these sites are, are doing basically membership. So, you know, you pay $5 a month or, you know, whatever it is, $48 a year or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're a member of the site. And so monthly or weekly or whatever it is, you get a newsletter or extra content or, or some sort of interaction. Like Jason Snell at Six Colors has a Six Colors members Slack that I'm in. So like all of his members are in a Slack together and they can all hang out and talk and talk with Jason and Dan. And so it's, it's a paid monthly, you know, recurring membership is really what these are. And are most of those roll your own? Are they doing, I think there's
0: memberful. Is that the Thing I've heard about.
1: Yeah. A lot of us are using memberful. We I use it at 512. We use it on relay as well for the relay membership, which works on the exact same model as this, right? You pay monthly or annually and you get extra shows and a newsletter and stuff. Mm-hmm. And and so it's it's a it's not a paywall, right? Like I'm not these people are we're not holding back content from the public site that is, you know, members only, or you get to read the first two paragraphs, and then if you don't pay, you don't get to read the rest of it or something. In the independent Tech blogging world, it is all the content on the site is free uh, for me. That includes the videos and everything else. But if you want some extra stuff, like behind the scenes, or like my members get previews of my YouTube videos before they go up, which I wholesale stole from CGP Grey. It was his idea. <laughs> he probably stole it from somebody else. But you get these perks, and you get to feel connected to the to the creator. I I just really like that because it gives us an opportunity as creators to not only diversify our income, but to have relationships with people, you know, who who like are interested, like the true fans who want to be more engaged. And as a member of all these other sites, I like that I can help support what they do because I read them every day. And I'm happy to give Jason Snell six dollars a month or whatever, because I more than get that out of out of what I read of his. It lets him continue to do his site in a way that he wants to do it independently. I think that's an important thing, at least in the tech sort of blogging world. Well, and to plug the relay FM
0: membership feed as well, some of my favorite episodes of anything have been on there. When uh hearing <laughs> John Roderick and John Syracuse meet is a uh, magical moments and when they had Todd Vizieri on this year. Those are just some of my yeah. absolute favorites or uh the text adventures. There's there's a lot of great things in there.
1: Yeah. But but even we keep coming back to this like decision matrix idea. Even the the question of do I do a membership or do I do a Patreon or something when do I do it? What perks do I offer? All of those are super complicated decisions.
0: I, tell me about it. I'm thinking about them all the time.
1: Yeah, and and so the the mistake I see people make, and it's it's heartbreaking when you see it, is hey, I'm doing a Patreon. So say you're a podcast, and I'm going to do an extra episode every every week for my members. And you click through the Patreon, and they've got six paying members. Yeah, Ryan's right? like, yeah. you are doing a lot of work. A lot of work for six people, for Mm -hmm. the, whatever it is, the $24 a month. And for me, at least, that would not be worth it. You've got to kind of be at a size where you've got a critical mass where the, you know, the point, you know, 2% of people who are going to join or whatever is enough to make what you're going to do worthwhile. Uh, Man, I'm sure you've seen it too. So many people strangle their creative projects by trying to monetize them too soon. Oh, for sure. And that used to be in advertising and now it's advertising and direct support. Yeah. And like, you got to be, again, something else to be careful about. Like you've got to time all that just right, or it, it rubs people the wrong way, or you're in bed for something that you you shouldn't be, or, you know, like something like relay. We didn't launch the membership. I think the network was like a year and a half old and we could have done it sooner. People were interested in it. We had some people ask us about it, which is really sort of mind blowing, honestly, but we couldn't do it for a bunch of reasons, just manpower until, we got it done basically. And so, yeah, like really did leave some money on the table probably, but when we launched it, it was successful out of the gate. And so I was happy with it knowing we had, we had reached whatever that invisible line is where, okay, now we're big enough where we can ask people for some money each month and there'll be enough of them to make the time and effort worth the income. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that equation makes sense.
0: Another interesting model out there, just thinking again about Ben Thompson. I don't know how many people have, paid newsletter subscriptions if that's becoming a trend but i think that's amazing that that can be a business model yeah. that people will give you money just to receive an email from you but to, you know to make that work you have to be you have to be amazing sure. you know like and like ben is an example i feel like it's pretty unique in his perspective yes I and mean, you have to
1: be at that level i read ben's email every morning <laughs> like yeah. it, it's there it's waiting for me and he writes about technology the things i talk and write about he has great insight so it's whatever it is 100 bucks a year or something but to your point, there's not many bens Ben Thompson's out there mm-hmm. like i am not i I don't think I could justify <laughs> no, that I, sort of project'm i not a Ben Thompson <laughs> yeah. no no um very few are right so it's it's about knowing the landscape, you know what Ben is doing on the surface looks like what I do, but it's not like I talk about products and services and like how. Like, the thing I'm most interested in is how products and services are tools for people to make things. But, like, Ben is, like, a business analyst, right? Like, he can go in-depth on these on these things that I would just never think about, yeah. right? Like, or never – I might think about them, but I would never come to the conclusions that he does – let alone be right all the time, which he is right. Yeah, but don't you love an the way percentage that of the time
0: <laughs> when he says it? It has that beautiful way of clicking, and you're like, "Of course, it's so obvious now that he's exactly." Said it, but you know, you never ever would have thought of it yourself,
1: right? Which means he's the right guy for that business model. Totally, yeah. And I'm sure, you know, I know Ben a little bit, but we're not close. And you know, I don't know what it was like for him to make that decision, but at some point he did, and it's paid off. And it's his, it's his job now. His job is to send five emails a week and and think really deeply about these things that are, that are complicated and. You know, over my pay grade, but it works for him. Mm -hmm. And he's found that niche in a way that, you know, if you can find the niche you're in and find a market for it, it totally can pay off. It's just getting all those ducks in a row is like, this is not quite the right word, but like it's kind of mystical in a way to a degree. Like everything's got to be right. Yeah, The timing, the content, the business, all of it.
0: This episode is brought to you by The Camera Store. And if that name sounds familiar, it's not just because it's a very clear and obvious name for a business that sells cameras. It's also because they have an amazing YouTube channel that you've probably come across before. They do really clear, thorough, honest reviews of cameras. Most cameras that come out, I mean, they just do a great job of covering the industry, talking about lenses. I mean, they will tell you what you need to know when you're shopping for a new camera. So that makes them a fantastic place to shop as well. So if you live in Canada, go to thecamerastore.com, check them out. You're going to find that they have as good of prices as anywhere else and better than most. I mean, there's a reason that I keep buying my gear from them. It's because they have great customer service, super competitive prices, and everything that I need. I love this store. I've been going there for years. And now it's time for you to check them out. Thank you one more time to The Camera Store for supporting the show. I have this idea I want to do someday about uh, in, which is a terrible thing to talk about publicly cuz then you don't do it and everybody <laughs> holds you to it. But yeah. so a really common question that comes in is just for advice about getting started with a like photography career and mm-hmm. I don't say I don't say a lot about it. I don't I don't like to give too much advice in that area because it's kind of risky if people take it too seriously and I don't want to uh, you know kind of be accountable for having ruined somebody's career by being too brisk in my response or saying trying to say something yeah. off the cuff and it's not well thought out enough for their situation. So at right. some point I'd like but to But taken
1: but taken as gospel by yeah, them. Right. Like yeah, that, exactly that, that disconnect.
0: Yeah, because there there can just be that weight of authority because that relationship we were talking about earlier about you're very familiar with somebody's work. But what I'd like to do at some point is that I I really want to put like an in-depth project together, be that a podcast or video with like a series of interviews of how different people got to where they are and th- all of the different paths, because that's the advice needs to be from a bunch of perspectives. And by the end, you need to realize most people got here by completely different paths, and there was a lot of luck <laughs> that that happened in between. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I, I look at just the people I get to work with at relay. And you got people like me, like, you know, I had a tech background in my career. I've got a journalism degree. Mike worked in finance. Jason Snell ran Macworld Magazine for a hundred years. You know, uh, Merlin had like a dot-com job with the the annoying guy he sat next to. Like we we all showed up in different ways. And I love that because it means that we all have different points of view on stuff because we have these backgrounds that we filter everything through. And it means that we have – a more diverse set of opinions than if everybody went to the same school, got the same degree, used the same technology, thought the same way, you know, liked the same things. I like it because in those in that diversity of opinion, you get the friction that comes out in our shows and you get like the disagreements and the different points of view and people changing other people's minds. Like all of that human stuff happens because we are also different. You know, I think it's really limiting, like, you know, I think someone would be limiting themselves if they said, oh, I don't have the background this person has. I, have, I, don't, I haven't had the life experience that got this person to where they are because everyone's track is different to your point. I think that's really important to consider.
0: Uh, so I should also finish the idea of um, what I what I do with Anya's blog as well. So the way that we run that together is, I mean, just to show this parallel universe thing, something that just wouldn't make sense when it comes to technology is that a lot of the time, the sponsors for fashion blogs are the brands of clothing being worn in the photos. And the key difference here is there's no commentary and there's no sense of like reviewing anything so a, a lot of the time, there's not there's not a lot of connection about like what's being said and who has sponsored it. It's um it's tied more to like it's just present in the content. So it, it's just so funny when I hang out with that group of people because I know a lot of other bloggers in that industry, and um, they just they aren't even aware that there are these other models over here in the tech world. So I, I've mm-hmm. I found it super useful to have that dual perspective, like seeing two very different paths of how this can work. And they don't – like, they couldn't really live together. Like, they are somewhat mutually incompatible. Yeah. But they both they both can be made to work on their own, like, in their own universes, you know?
1: It's funny. As you were talking about that model, I was like, oh, that's kind of weird to me. Like, yeah. you know, we have very clear de- boundaries around – you know what's advertising what's content. Yeah,
0: imagine if it was like I'm reviewing the new iPhone because Apple hired me to review it. Like that doesn't even it doesn't even right. make sense in the, in the tech world. Right. Yeah.
1: And and you see like in tech videos and in tech podcasting, people go around their elbow to explain that's not what's happening, yeah. right? Like okay, maybe Apple did provide me a review unit, but this is my opinion or you know, we run into this into the shows because we work with sponsors with co- you know, products we love, right? So like uh, say, the Omni Group, right? Just to pick an example out of the, out of the air. I like OmniFocus. It's a great getting things done app. And I can talk about that in the show, but then I do I have that that tickle in the back of my throat of like, I should say they've been a sponsor before. And so usually I do. Yeah, yeah, and totally. I'm probably a, a stickler for it because like I've got a journalism background where like editorial and advertising work in separate rooms and with the two shall not touch. But it, to our audience, in our context, that division is important to a lot of people. But- Again, like looking outside of just our world, that's not the way it is universally, right? Mm-hmm. So, it, it helps to know the industry that you want to be in or that you are in, and, and to understand what those norms are, so you can operate within them. And if you break out of them, knowing that you do it and knowing how to handle that, and so they are very different. And like I, I love that you have that perspective because I just don't like I, this is just the where I've been forever, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's really interesting to hear other other sides of it because. You know The way I do it isn't the only right way or the way you do it isn't the only right way. There there are lots of right ways to do it. So understanding that while going into it, while operating within it is important. And I would imagine that sometimes you have to like mode switch, right? Like between the things that you do of like, right, this is sort of the standard practice over here. But over here on the show or somewhere else, like I've got to make these qualifications because – it is a little bit of a different audience. They have different expectations of the way these relationships work. Totally, yeah.
0: I mean, this is even just a good uh, opportunity for me to clarify some of how I do this too. I, I mode switch on my content too because I've, because of the relationships we've built with fashion brands, I do sponsored fashion stuff on my Instagram sometimes as well. And that is in that sort of, you know, that stream of like, I'm not reviewing a product in any way. I'm not like giving a perspective. I right. chose what I'm wearing. So obviously I like it because this is how I'm dressed. But then if I'm talking about a technology product, if I'm reviewing it in any way, it's never sponsored. It could be sponsored by an unrelated company that is doing something completely sure. different. And I feel super comfortable with that. Like like that's similar to podcast sponsorships, Right. Squarespace great example like we all we all love Squarespace yeah. when they sponsor a what I don't remember which one's they did for me I think it was uh, at least one phone review and that relationship is very clear that it's not influencing my opinion of the product right and it's same with how podcasting sponsorships works I like that there is a lot of clarity in that so anytime that it is one or the other, I just am absolutely going to say what is happening here, and I think that's the key thing that people know what that relationship is ahead of time, and you know, kind of know what they're getting into or what what to expect when they see a certain message come across something that you can create.
1: But it's super important from the audience perspective, right? Because if that goes wrong somehow, then like as a creator, I've broken the trust I have with my audience.
0: There's a. Terrible YouTube video this week from what's his name Jake Paul. <laughs> sure, you know the really loud guys, uh, the brothers, yeah, the, yeah. those guys. Yeah, yeah, yes. Where yeah, he's like, I spent five thousand dollar on loot boxes, and here's what I got. It's like, okay, well, you didn't spend any money because this is a sponsorship, so you got paid <laughs> to buy these loot boxes, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's and then I mean, right. it's also just gambling as well. So there's there definitely can be
1: crossings of the line Mm and um and you know for like small creators like us like if i did something and i broke the audience of relay if i broke that trust with them like it'd be devastating to my business yeah (laughs) because i mean it's i mean relay is big but it's 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 all that i've got right like it is my business it is how i pay my bills and so i i need to take that really seriously and you know there's this sort of like thing I come back to a lot of like those of us who are creating like free media or advertising generated media, like people are paying with paying for that with their time, which is like the most important thing any of us have, right? Like just period. You can't ever earn more of it. It's always getting your supplies always running out. Like we are always losing time and it is a one way ticket. And like, I say all that not to be a Debbie downer, but like that means if people sit with for eight minutes and watch you know, you review your new MacBook Pro, or they listen to an episode of Connected that's 92 minutes long. Like they've invested like 92 minutes of their life with me. Like, you know, not to put too fine of a point on it, but like, that's, that's kind of a big deal. Like, and I need to respect that. And that means all these other things, right? It means that I need to provide something that, that, that is like well done and thoroughly considered. It means that it, when there's advertising and money changing hands, I'm really clear about that in a way that people feel like they can trust me and all those things come back to that because that's really all we're trading is our work for their time and and it you know I feel it more acutely now than ever just follow me down this trail for a second all right uh both iOS iOS twelve and like Android nine pi the screen all the screen time stuff we're getting right now it's so like my phone tells me, hey, you spent you know, you know, 14 hours on YouTube this week, or whatever it is. Like, man, whatever that number is, I don't know what the number is for me. Yeah, is it? Wow. Okay. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> my phone's across the room, but whatever that number is, like, that's a real indication of like, I am taking time out of my life to, 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 and like, I'm getting lots of, I'm enjoying it. They're funny. I'm learning, whatever it is, but like, it puts a point on it that I think, we should all be more mindful of as people who make stuff for a living. Yeah, absolutely. I've maybe,
0: made this maybe that's point. heavy duty. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I've I've kind of made that point about even Instagram stories that when you're posting stories, I think a lot of people are are really casual about it and will post actual garbage, like things they didn't think were good in the first place. But they're like, oh, it's disposable. You know, nobody really takes too seriously. But you should consider that even if those clips are short, people are only watching it for 10 to 15 seconds. That's their time too. I mean, that is still valuable time and it's worth making a little effort there. All the So that's just a smaller example of what you're saying, but I think that it should be considered in all ways that it, we all only have so much time to give and people, and selfishly as well as creators, there's a lot of competition out there. So you have every interest to make it as useful for the person listening as possible.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's such an important thing and when you're you know as audiences grow i feel that pressure way more intensely than i did 2 years ago or you know 4 years ago when relay was just five or six shows like relay put so many hours of content out into the world each week and i'm i'm not on most of it at this point right other people are but like it's just like a big thud out into the world every time we we publish a bunch of shows and people hit play the second they come out And like, I want to honor that and respect that. And like, I'm truly humbled by it, but it is something that it makes this all, all these conversations about all the stuff we've talked about really weighty because it's like people out there driving in their cars or mowing their yard or washing their dishes, whatever. And they're choosing to spend time with you. And it's something that it means like all these decisions we've talked about for the last hour or so, like it means all those have gone right. And now you're at a point where, someone is paying attention and is really excited when you make something new, which is incredible. It's so incredible. But it means that like when you show up for work, you've got to really show up for work.
0: That's another difference that we didn't really touch on is that in a lot of these independent platforms, you're going to also receive a lot less feedback. So mm-hmm. I'd like to hear a bit more since you have a variety of shows and a bunch of different audiences with Relay. How do you experience feedback a lot of the time? I mean, on, on YouTube, there can just be constant drive-by comments of people that have never seen your videos before and never gonna see them again and you know, kinda yeah. are <laughs> jerks. But there also sure. can be a lot more engagement. There and a lot of it is great too. I love there there are very good people on YouTube and I get to engage with a really great community there as well. But in the podcast world, I mean It's a few tweets back and forth after an episode's launched, and there's so much less immediate conversation. Whereas for a YouTube video, I mean, I expect there to be at least a few comments every single time. And even if a podcast has the same number of downloads and presumably listeners, you know, you don't really know, but a similar amount of listeners, there's just a lot less conversation that I can see afterwards.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. That was a real struggle for me when I started publishing to my YouTube channel a couple of years ago. I was like, oh, right, people can just leave comments, right? And like people can <laughs> comment on your appearance or, you know, this technique that you did, they didn't like. I mean, it's, it's really different. Uh, so for us in the podcasting world, you're right. It is a, a much smaller percentage of people leave feedback than other things. And so for Relay, a lot of it is on Twitter, but some shows have other methods. And so something like Connected, I really push, Hey, like send us an email. And over time, our audience has gotten pretty comfortable with just sending me email about stuff. And I like it because it's not public on Twitter and I can have a more in depth conversation with somebody if I need to, uh, or if I, or I feel like it warrants it, but something like cortex has a whole subreddit full of lots of people. And so, they're getting feedback that way. You know, there's a thread for each episode, and Mike is in there. And when Gray's on the internet, he's in there. And there's a community around the show now in that subreddit or something like Mac Power Users, which I just joined at the beginning of the oh, year. Oh, yeah. That's really exciting. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, there's a whole discussion forum, right? Like, there's a whole discourse of people doing tech support for each other and leaving comments on the episodes. And there's like a whole thing where people just share what their desks look like. It's a whole little universe with a couple thousand people in it just based around this podcast. And so there's feedback in there, but then there's relationships between audience members, you know, outside of the show. That's interesting. I like that model, uh things like Cortex and, and Mac power users are doing because it, it gives the show an opportunity to be like a hub for a community. You know, Brad and Mike have that for the pen addict because the pen act became like the watering hole for the pin world. And so like when we travel with, with Brad, like Brad is a God in the pin world. Amazing. It's crazy. And so like, I think when you can figure out a way to like make your show or website or whatever, be a place where people just want to hang out and they start to build relationships amongst themselves, that's really special. And so we don't, we don't have that for most of our shows because most of our shows don't have a place like that. And so it is just Twitter or email or whatever, but when a show has the opportunity to do something past that, I find it really meaningful. So for like, for me stepping into the Mac power users role, a show that's been around since 2009, that form has been running for a couple of years in various forms in various places. And so like I'm being introduced into a community that's already up and running. And that's, that's really different for me. And it's been sort of challenging in ways I didn't expect, but it means that I have, I can form relationships with people in the audience over time and they can get to know me and we can interact in ways that aren't just me, you know, coming out of their AirPods when they're at the gym, right? It puts me in a different context for them and it, it puts them in a, in a context for me that I wouldn't have otherwise. And I think that's really cool. I don't think you can have that in YouTube comments. Most of the time, maybe, maybe some people get there. I have not found that to be the case yet on my channel, Mm -hmm. but for the most part, but there are opportunities I think to build little worlds or people to hang out in. And that's, I find it enjoyable. The idea of having a subreddit sounds
0: great, but I feel like I need a few million more listeners first. I, I <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, that's like a yeah.
1: matter of scale, right? To- totally. It's the same thing yeah. with like, oh, I launched my Patreon too soon. I've got six backers, right? For sure. All that's the yeah. same conversation. Yeah. Em- empty like
0: Empty subreddit, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's depressing, right? And you don't want that. So something like, you know, and and – and Cortex and Mac Power Users are two of our biggest shows. And so like it makes sense that that's where they are, where something like a show like Liftoff that I do with Jason about the space industry is smaller. And like it has really dedicated listeners, but we're not big enough to have a subreddit or a form that would be trafficked in any way that's meaningful. And so we've kept that feedback to Twitter and email because that's sort of where it belongs at the scale that it's at. Could we spend the last couple minutes
0: talking about old Max? <laughs> Uh, I, I would love to talk about that. I mean, I don't know if I can restrain you to only talk for a few minutes about it. <laughs> I mean, mostly mostly, I'd love to know if there's anything you can tell me about where where I started with Macs or if you have any awareness of what my first machine was. So that was uh, the Power Mac. Power Macintosh 6300 was my first computer that I used for a long time. and This was a beige box that was flat. So like you'd put the monitor on top typically. And uh-huh. I can't really think of what year it would have been. It was an amazing place to start.
1: Uh, let's see. Yeah. So the 6300 I'm looking in, uh, there's a little application called Mac Tracker, which I use all the time. That would have been in uh, like the summer of '96, sounds right, Early 97. sometimes this sound about right. Yep, yeah And I mean, if, that's the, that's, the, that's the dark time. <laughs> I know. yeah,
0: it really was. It was uh, I mean, I didn't know that at the time though, but it was um, it was a weird time to start. but there were things about it that the, okay, the biggest, biggest thing that was amazing at the time is that it had RCA inputs on the back. So I could plug my video camera into the back of my computer and see the image. Or I could also plug my Nintendo 64 into the back and I could record video of Mario 64 on my computer. And in the mid-90s, that was insane because I didn't know anybody else that could do that. So I don't know, that was my favorite feature that I made like stop motion animation at the time when there wasn't apps for that. Um, But that (laughs) computer really enabled creative output in ways that i I couldn't have been doing if it was a windows pc
1: yeah with a whole 120 megahertz cpu apparently cooking with gas in 1996 (laughs) oh man uh that that exact thing is why i love talking about this stuff like i I love hardware and i love seeing how they've developed over time and how they've evolved but for me like when i first came to the mac it would have been a little after that i grew up in a windows household but uh, so i'm at the mac in high school in like 2000 2001 And it just unlocked that in my mind of like, right, I can have an idea and I can like make it happen. And for me at the time, it was like newspaper articles and newspaper layout and Cork Express. But I have this vision of whatever this is. And like this computer gives me the tools to make it. And so now that's changed. I'm not doing newspaper layout I'm making podcasts and videos and blog posts. But it's the same thing. Like this iMac Pro in front of me, as glorious as it is, is just a really fancy screwdriver (laughs) at the end of the day. But those tools have changed over time. And so, like, what you were doing then, like, I'm sure, like, having RC Ajax in the back of your computer, like, blew your friend, blew your, the minds of your friends, right? Totally. Like, you can do what? Like, let's go to Tyler's house and, like, do cool video stuff. Because it gave you tools that the other people didn't have. And that still is what makes the Mac special to me and why I think even in the world of iPhones and iPads, the Mac still stands alone a little bit in this sort of creation regard like don't hear what i'm not saying i'm not saying you can't create stuff on an ipad i can hear your emails now i'm not saying that <laughs> but uh, i am saying the mac or a pc or a pc if you want to use premiere like some sort of animal mm-hmm. but <clears throat> please email tyler about that <laughs> previous comment
0: e- email will not be provided in this episode
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um apple's always been really good at giving its its users like tools to make cool stuff and so the mac has evolved over time now you're 6300 is a doorstop to most people. I don't have one, but if I did, it would be in my you know collection somewhere. Not a doorstop to me because I, I like seeing how those tools have evolved over time.
0: Do you have a favorite in your collection? I mean, I, I hate to make you choose, but like, what what do you end up picking up or touching or staring at longest uh, these days?
1: It's a complicated answer. Uh, the mach- The old machine that I use the most is a uh, like an old fifteen inch book. Like if I want to if I want to do something in sort of the early days of OS 10, those machines can boot a a lot of different versions of them. And, you know, you always have nostalgia. So like the first computer I sort of owned was a titanium power book. And so I've got a couple of them now, and I just have a emotional connection with that machine that it was the first Mac that was mine. Mm -hmm. It was the first Mac that I could, you know, I took it to college and like, you know, it was in my dorm. Like it was, I spent a lot of time with it. And so I have an emotional bond to that machine, but then you've got things like, well, you know, what's important historically and what's interesting, like what's beautiful. Like the, the G4 Cube, I think, is the best-looking Mac they've ever made. I was going to say, I, I
0: always look back at the Cube and just love it. I would it's, love a new beautiful. one. I'd, I'd still take one today.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, maybe the modular Mac Pro will be a G4 oh, Cube. Yeah, Who knows? Yeah. They tried a cylinder last time, go back to the Cube. You yeah, know, it worked.
0: You could just stack. Or Have you seen when the, the minis are stacked? Like, they had that at the... Uh, release there was a bunch of them on top of each other kind of showing how it could be a little server situation and uh, that's Mm -hmm. what it was making me think of i'm like oh it's kind of a a cube pro situation yeah
1: yeah absolutely and you know so that machine i'm always drawn to for the the aesthetic of it the design of it for a long time the cube sat on my desk now it's on the bookcase i sent you a link we can put in the show notes uh, oh yeah well part of the collection so people can poke around and judge me for how many computers are in my office (laughs) but you know, I just, I think it's so interesting to see where we've come from, where Apple's come from, where the Mac's come from, not necessarily to predict the future. I think that, that, I think there's circular logic there to a degree, but it can inform, I think our, our, our opinions about the future. And I think the Mac will continue to be a really important creative tool for years and years to come. The iPad is growing in that regard. The iPhone, it's, I mean, you can do 4k video editing on the iPhone. I don't know if you should, but you can, <laughs> all all these tools are becoming more capable the Mac had that lifespan over, you know, talked about the 90s when when you were coming around to it. Like, not a lot of people were like new Mac users in 1996. Like, they yeah. just weren't. Apple was in a different place. And you see the growing pains the Mac had. You can equate those to the growing pains that the iPad and iOS are having this very day, you know, uh, where like the hardware's really capable, but the software's not there. That was the story of the Mac for a while, too. And then in other chapters of the Mac's history, the software was there, but the hardware could of keep up. And there's always that give and take. And I think we can learn from that and make informed debates about the present and future. But you know, also just like seeing how they've how they've evolved <laughs> physically, I think that's fun too. They just look so. nice.
0: Yeah, it's true.
1: They do look nice. Uh, even the ugly ones, I think, have their own their <laughs> own special charm. Like the 20th anniversary Mac, objectively not a pretty computer, but a very strange and weird I one. I
0: remember it looking so good. I thought it was beautiful in the day, but maybe that's just because IMAX didn't exist yet. So it was.
1: Yeah, you look at it now it's like, oh. Yeah. Oh, oh Weird. friend. Oh no. But anyway, it,
0: it your collection is beautiful and people should definitely
1: thanks. Uh,
0: well, visit your blog to to see it. So, speaking of, where are all the places everybody can find you on the internet? Open and closed.
1: Open open and closed. I will rank them in order of openness uh, <laughs> of their API. No, I'm just kidding. So, I mean, the main thing I do, I'm a podcaster. That's how i define what I do. Uh those shows over at relay.fm. Lots of nerdy stuff about tech and Apple and design development lots of stuff over there so you can find me there but then I write and do YouTube stuff under the brand 512pixels so it's 512pixels.net and the YouTube channel is just 512pixels and there's some modern Apple stuff mixed in there but uh, a lot of specifically Mac history in there now too as I've sort of come around like this is what really I want to talk about and there's an audience for it so that stuff is over there and then you can find me on Twitter as long as Twitter's still in business when you're listening to this you can find me on Twitter as ISMH (laughs)